So Shark Week was last week, which means I missed it by one week in terms That's of guessing okay. when I published it. But we didn't have a real episode last week anyway. My dad is obsessed with Seaspiracy. I haven't seen it what yet is because I'm scared too. I'm really scared too. So my dad keeps insisting I should watch it, but I told him I don't need to watch it. I already know all that yeah. stuff. Um, I have what watched- is Seaspiracy? Okay, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Um, so basically Seaspiracy is like this documentary that's revealing that the real main drivers of climate change are corporations that fish. We all knew this already. We all knew that the root first problem, like the number one problem is the fishing industry. And they yes. kind of, there's other contributing factors, but the fishing industry causes so many of the issues that kind of snowball, right? So he keeps telling me like, it's going to blow your mind. I'm like, really? What's like so mind blowing about it? And he's always like, oh, like it's about how they leave the plastic lines in the ocean. I was like, I knew that. He's like, they leave the nets and everything. I'm like, I knew that. So if you are a versed person who's interested in sea wildlife, you probably already know the stuff in this documentary from what my dad has described to me, but I have yet to watch it. And I was like already up on like the Dolphin Cove stuff in 2011. So like, I know, I know lots about I started Bad watching it. Yeah. So I have like, I've talked about this before. I've had like a very up and down relationship with food. So anything mm-hmm. that's talking about like food, no go, like this is a bad industry. Like I know it already. And after watching this, I'll just feel worse about mm-hmm. it. Other than going vegan, which I know will not be sustainable for my body for a whole host of reasons. So don't come at me for it. Where I also back San Francisco. So the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which I regret Great not going. Aquarium. I Great had aquarium. planned. Incredible. It was going to be my birthday trip, but then the fucking pandemic <sighs> happened. And no, I truly, it was because my birthday was over Memorial Day weekend. Right. We were going to take the whole weekend, go to Monterey, go to the aquarium two times because I could not do it all in one. Amazing. Incredible. And that got all canceled. Anywho, Monterey Aquarium did a lot of like local fish sourcing and if it's not the Monterey Aquarium I apologize again I'll put this in the uh, August newsletter but they kind of have like this blue seal not like a seal that goes art art but like seal that like a sticker seal for a lot of restaurants adopt it for their like where they source fish the thing is there are plenty of sustainable options for example locally caught fish that are caught by someone you know yeah that's a great option um or fish that are farm raised so a lot of these like local restaurants have at least like one of them but i've seen the monterey bay one and you know like your fish was sustainably sourced as much as possible this modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women And welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Hey, Lexi, when did you learn to swim? I actually can't remember, but it must have been pretty early because I can't remember it. And Haley, are you more a beach person or pool person? Beach all the way. I love the beach. And I'm Alana, and I spent every New Year's Day of my childhood at the beach. So... We have aquariums and zoos. Are fish allowed at zoos? And if there are fish, what percentage of I fish are to, there until it's an aquarium? I went to an aquarium that was marketed as an aquarium 
but there were hippos. Do hippos belong in an aquarium? Was this the Camden Aquarium? It might have been. The Camden Aquarium has two hippos, and I think they are somewhat aquatic. But this was also belong in the aquarium. I genuinely, it might have been the Camden Aquarium. Hey, mom, when did we see in like 2008? Well, were you visiting family in Philly? Maybe. If so, that aquarium's like 20 minutes. It was somewhere on the East Coast. Yeah, it was probably Camden because that one I have been to several times because I grew up outside of Philadelphia and um, they have two female hippos at a time. Sometimes they're usually rescued. And it must have been then. And I just remember because I was like, I was in second grade and my grandfather had been in hospice for a really long time. And so at one point he called us and he was like, what have you been doing lately? And I was like, oh, I went to a zoo or I went to an aquarium and there were hippos. And he was like, hippos at an aquarium. And that's the last thing I remember him saying to me. But from my recollection, every time I've ever been to the Camden Aquarium, the hippos have been in the water. The hippos have been in the water. Well, this one I think was having a a watermelon. I remember very clearly okay. walking but, over this hippo and it while it was eating a watermelon. And penguins are at the aquarium. Penguins That's true. I've seen every aquarium has penguins. But Almost like, here's the them. thing. What percentage like cuz I've seen fish, there are penguins at the zoo. What percentage of fish and or like land animals do you need to consider yourself a zoo versus an aquarium? But is anyone even close cuz here's my experience, right? When I'm at an aquarium, typically, I'm thinking of like the National Aquarium as like a token example. There's often 75% plus aquatic life, fish or mammals, whatever it is. And then there's often a small section that is bird-based. There are some other aquariums that are much smaller, same sort of percentage. They have some birds, they have some fish. That makes sense to me. The hippos even make sense to me and the penguins make sense to me since they are very water-based. There are otters at the Camden Aquarium. Makes sense to me, very water-based. Now, if you went to a zoo, often there is like maybe 5% fish and it's often worked into something else. Like I think of the National Zoo, the Arowana tank. Makes sense because it is part of this like tropical ecosystem that involves lots of other critters. Like if you go there, Boomer's there, if he's still there. I don't know if he's been moved around for breeding. I don't know if the girlfriend they found for him was successful or not. AZA, we've talked about this before. Go listen to our episode on zoos and moving around the gorillas for breeding on private planes. It's one um, of our favorite episodes or one of like, my favorite episodes. You know, the arowanas are there to make a natural environment for Boomer, the hawk-headed parrot. And then what makes something an aviary versus a zoo or an aquarium too? I think every animal-based place has some mixture because they're trying to create a good environment for the critters. That's right? what I'm thinking. So this may not be a good environment. Like I'm not talking about the environment for this, but I was thinking of the California Academy of Sciences. I've never been there. Lexi, if you go down to San Francisco, pay the bucks to do this. Cal Academy is a museum and it's always been talked about as a museum, at least for being at USF and us talking. I believe we've brought it up on the podcast before, but they have live animals. And that's like a unique thing for a museum. And they have in one room penguins with in their like natural history wing. So I thought those penguins were like fake. And then like one hit the like glass and I was like, holy crap, you're an alive animal. So if you go through the rainforest, you have like rainforest critters but more birds and some fish and then it drops you down into their like basement which that's where they had their like albino alligator crocodile and then they have all these fish and it's kind of like the showstopper so should cal academy be really like an aquarium but aren't all aquariums and zoos just museums that's yeah 
plenty of museums have living collections. Natural history has live bugs in DC. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, it does. Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Um, so all someone in my in class, there. someone in my class, um, works at the Butterfly Pavilion. Hi, Avery. If you're an intern at the Smithsonian, you get into the Butterfly Pavilion for free once yes, a month. So you should go. True. I never um, did that. And then there's also live fish at that museum. And then where the where? fuck are the live fish? Yes, in the ocean exhibit, there is two live fish tanks because I used to go there when I worked there and go sit and stare at them. Yes, yes, yes. There's a live coral tank and then there's a live fish. Yep, tank. yep. So okay, maybe that it's not. That and then because um, I was thinking of the New York museums, and that's not a thing in NYC. Right? I'm trying to think. There's another one I had on the tip of my tongue, and then I totally forgot. That is another museum that has live critters. Oh, the Da Vinci Center, which not a big museum, but it is from my hometown where I was born. It's a science museum. It's like a science center geared towards like K through 12, but they have a sloth, three kinds of parrots and a couple other like reptilian critters. So I don't think it's that crazy for a science-based museum or science center yeah. to okay. have like a touch tank or something like that. So to me, in my opinion, in my professional opinion, all these things are museums. The collections just vary. And so what the public calls them varies because That's modern zoos are managed like museums. A hundred years ago, absolutely not. It's a totally different concept. But in today's yeah. world, a living collection is managed literally the same way. I mean, there's obviously some differences because you have to feed them and keep them alive. But when you think about like the environment you keep art in and the temperatures and so, so to me, if the management is like collections management, right? And there's a yeah. collections management person, yeah. It's a museum. They're all just museums. So that's, I grew up thinking muse, uh, museums, aquariums, zoos were all extensively museums. But going into the like professional world of museums, it was like a very mixed thing. But mainly people are like, I'm in a museum. I've never heard people be I, like, I, I think people who are, who are anal, <laughs> for lack of a better word, people in the museum industry who are very particular about what they think a museum is are the reason that ICOM can't come up with a definition, the International Council of Museums, not to throw anyone under the bus. And this isn't everyone, but a lot of collections people, they want to separate, right? They want to pull apart. But people who are like in education or engagement or even like administration see no difference because their job's the same at either museum. But a zookeeper and a conservator have very different jobs. And so I think those are the people who try and keep that barrier. But someone like me, my job would be the same either place. I mean, obviously it's different content. Like, I mean, they're talking about a piece of art or I'm talking about a penguin giving birth, but there are these different aspects of the actual collections care. And so I think collections people are the people who are anal about it. So that's my thought. They have more in common than they don't have in common. So yeah. deep down in the strange lurid murky depths of the Pacific are fantastic, horribly grotesque creatures of the sea that challenge man's courage as no earthly creatures can. Science knows some of the answers, but not all. And among science's unknowns is the strange identity of the living monster from the ocean floor. I am so excited for this lady. I've been thinking about her for like, when did I put this on the list? Like six months ago? A long, long ass time ago. And someone suggested her and I literally can't remember. It might've been our friend Kelsey. I think someone sent this to me because the title included the word lady. Um, so we're going to talk about a special woman, which I selected for two reasons. Her nickname has the word lady, and that's why someone sent her to me as a recommendation. But this is literally six months ago. Comment on our Instagram or something. I'll give you credit there. And she was a scuba diver. 
and I love scuba diving and we haven't covered a diver yet. I also think the person who suggested this specifically suggested her to me because of the scuba diving. But please remind me uh, if you remember, because quite frankly, people forget things. So we're going to talk about Dr. Eugenie Clark, also known as Jeannie, which is funny because I've been binge watching I Dream of Jeannie, which is outdated, but I'm just watching it for the social commentary I can create about it. Maybe that's a Patreon episode, my social commentary on I Dream of Jeannie. Anyway, Dr. Eugenie Clark, also known as Shark Lady, was born in New York City, shout outs to Haley from New Yorker, and learned to swim before her second birthday, which is pretty impressive. I think of those toddler videos where like they throw the baby in the water and they like the babies learn to put themselves upright. Definitely want to do this with my kids because I think it's super useful life skill. And like I said, I learned to swim really early. I can't remember when I learned to swim. So from the age of nine, Eugenie spent her weekends at the New York Aquarium. Her father had died when she was little and her mother needed a safe place for her to go while she worked at a newsstand downtown in Brooklyn. So she took her to Battery Park, which is where the old New York Aquarium used to be. It's not there anymore. And she would just leave her at the aquarium and be like, oh, the sharks can babysit you. So like naturally, her mother thought the best babysitters for her daughter were the critters at the aquarium. Turns out, leaving her daughter to the sharks was the best thing Eugenie's mom could ever have done because it led Eugenie to a career as one of the world's most prolific shark experts. Eugenie earned her bachelor's degree in ichthyology if I'm saying that correctly, which is fish science, the study of fish. Ichthyology. Ichthyology. She earned her degree in ichthyology or fish science from Hunter College in 1942, which is pretty awesome because A, Eugenie is half Japanese and there was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment in the country at this time. And B, she was a woman. So like not only was Eugenie a woman in science when it was difficult to be a woman in science, but she was a Japanese American woman studying science when it was hard to be a Japanese American and hard to be a woman in science. So all these like combined factors. She probably overcame a lot of prejudice in her schooling. I would imagine there were a lot of people who said a lot of mean things to her, but guess what? She persevered. And after getting a doctorate from NYU, she traveled to the Algardaki, Algardake, I do not speak Arabic, Marine Biological Station in Egypt, where she studied fish from largely unexplored waters. Um, so she kind of studied a bunch of different types of Egyptian fish and got a lot of experience from that. And while most marine biologists of the mid 20th century were these macho guys who were like fishermen on boats and they captured specimens from on board a ship and they looked at them and they either killed them and kept them or they threw them back or they took them to really archaic aquariums, stuff like that. Eugenie jumped right in the water, observed the critters she was studying in their natural habitat, and she became a really talented scuba diver, which allowed her to further her studies underwater. So she kind of pioneered this thing that's like now the norm for science, which is like go out and observe the natural processes instead of collecting and bringing back. Very cool of her. Of course, it took a woman to do such a thing. In 1955, Eugenie established a research lab in Florida. She became a world-renowned expert on fishes of all kinds, but was most notable for her devotion to sharks. She wrote countless books explaining the life of sharks in order to dispel the myths that cause people to fear them. Her life's work helped set the record straight and show that sharks are misunderstood. She even did research to show that sharks, much like other animals, can be trained to complete actions on command for treats. She taught them to bump their noses into certain objects in order to receive a treat, which is so adorable. And she's just like scuba diving with these wild sharks and being like, you want a treat? <laughs> so great. Eugenie also discovered two types of fish, including the Moses sole, 
which produces its own natural shark repellent. So she wrote a lot of research on like how it could be used to repel sharks from like swimmers and stuff like that, since people are so afraid of them. And in 1968, she became a professor at the University of Maryland. So kind of ties back into the, we did New York City, now we're doing DC or the DMV, I guess. And she spread her love of all things marine biology to a new generation of scientists. In all her years of research, Eugenie was never bitten by a shark despite swimming with them constantly. Um, one time she was carrying the jaw of a deceased shark in her car and it cut open her skin. And so she says that's the only time she was ever bit by a shark, but it was just the skeletal frame of the shark that quote unquote bit her. And it further proves something I tell people all the time. Scuba diving is one of the safest water activities when it comes to interacting with sharks because they can tell you're not food because they can see your whole body. But when you're swimming, it's just your shadow and that can sometimes confuse them. Eugenie was married to five different men and had four children, all of whom she taught to swim before they turned two. So just like her, her mom was a very big swimmer and her dad who passed away early on in her life owned a pool. So like a public pool he owned, you know, swimming is very important to the family. When Eugenie passed away in 2015, her children and grandson spread her ashes into the Gulf of Mexico from aboard the RV Eugenie Clark, which is a research ship owned by the Moet Laboratory, which is the research laboratory she founded in Florida. The story could be a children's book. No? Well, guess what? It is one. It's called Shark Lady. And I included a link to like a reading of it, but you could also buy it at your local bookstore, which is exciting if you have little kiddos you would like to gift that to and teach them about strong women doing science and jumping in the pool with sharks. Anyway, that's Shark Lady who really needed to be covered on this show because it is lady history and we need to cover the history of all the ladies. All right, mine's not necessarily a shark lady but just like an ocean lady because my story is all about Dr. Sylvia Earle and I think her Twitter bio basically covers it. She's a quote oceanographer, National Geographic explorer in residence, founder of at Mission Blue and 2009 TED prize winner saving and restoring the blue heart of the planet. That's my story. Thanks for coming. No, I'm just joking. That wasn't enough, but Time Magazine named her one of the, quote, heroes for the planet for her work in pioneering, like, the research on marine ecosystems, and she focused, or still focuses, she's still active. It's great. She, I think, is 82, and every time I looked at, like, her publications and stuff, which I'll get to, it's always a different number, and it's higher than the last. She's my idol, and she focuses in exploration, conservation, and building new technology to effectively get to the deeper sea and other remote parts of the ocean that we just have not explored, because guess what? We really have not explored the ocean in its, like, full capacity. Yeah, she's led more than 100 expeditions, logged over 7,000 hours underwater, and has been the author of more, or one of the authors, more than 190 scientific, technical, and popular, which is like not peer-reviewed publications. And this was all for her National Geographic bio, and they didn't put a publication date. And like I said, all these numbers are different. 
and it's definitely increased and diving deeper no one's laughing at my pun but that's okay you just say diving deeper all the time i know but we're studying oceans or doing the ocean ladies i didn't even think about it because it's just what i expect you to say yeah (laughs) all right swimming deeper uh diving board deeper we're passing her early life very good pun Haley. good pun thank you and we're beginning with her fabulous career specifically her creating mission blue because i picked her because i love mission blue which is one of the many organizations she's created in the field of oceanography and is in her twitter bio from the about us page it's quote mission blue inspires action to explore and protect the ocean led by legendary oceanographer dr sylvia Earle. mission blue is uniting a global coalition to inspire the upwelling of public awareness access and support for a worldwide network of marine protected areas dash hope spots which is they're kind of like first blurb and hope spots are areas deemed critical for like a healthy ocean and some if not all are endangered because that's where we're at their mission of like mission blue Another quote that they have, which I also thought was fabulous, was Mission Blue inspires action to explore and protect the ocean, which a lot of places, and we're kind of like talking about this in the intro, a lot of places are like, we have to protect. And I don't get a lot of sense of like, we have to explore them. There is an easy way to explore oceans. Like I've seen so many posts of don't scuba dive, don't snorkel. No, snorkel, but in scuba dive, in a sustainable way. Don't go touching the coral or the fishies. Don't be wearing sunscreen that's gonna poison the ocean. If that jives and that's part of your mission to kind of help us, like if you're studying algae and how algae like helps ecosystems thrive and can that translate to medication, that's great. Those people are doing it in a great way. And that's just my tangent that I'm gonna continue with I can't do justice to how amazing Ocean Blue is. So please visit their website, linked in the show notes, of course, where you can watch their webinars, read some of their ocean stories. And Netflix even has a documentary about them, which is incredible. Also linked in their website. I think we should do a Netflix party and then we can Patreon talk about it. And one thing I read about Mission Blue that I liked is that they want to make a network that brings together nonprofits and for-profits because their goal overall is to make a happy planet for humans. Because like parentheses, let's be real, uh, the earth is a heap of rock that will be around after humans are gone. So really saving the planet for humans, not saving the planet for earth to survive because earth will pretty much survive. It's the humans that will be, oh, no, no. But for-profits are big companies that are around just to make money and nonprofits. Um, why am I blanking on the term for nonprofits when I literally have a degree in how to help nonprofit? Anyone help me out here? This is embarrassing. Had a blank. For-profit will make money. Nonprofit? Yes. Money. Yes. That's the best. I was going to say that, but then I was like, that sounds douchey. But yeah, that's basically it. And That's awesome because we need the help of big companies. Like we were saying before, it's like seven big companies. So if Mission Blue can like get those companies to remove their heads from their massive, tightly wound sphincters 
and get on board with like ocean conservation snaps to that and snaps to Sylvia. And fun fact, she has a PhD in phycology, which is a study of algae. And I've never heard of that. And Allie Ward, if you're ever listening, can we have a phycology episode? Because I believe that's not one yet. That's it. That's Sylvia. I love it when you say sphincter, Haley. Also, you can scuba dive at a coral reef farm and help them that's also coral true. reef back out that they grow in a safe space. So if you want to scuba dive for a purpose, if that makes more sense to you, um, I've done it. It's very fun. I love that. We're going to turn my parents into coral reefs when they die. That's just a thing that's going to happen. In an effort to recreate the magic of episode nine, uh, when I surprised my co-hosts with my story about Coco the gorilla, today I am once again covering a lady animal. Um, Although this one is not as good because Haley and Lexi knew about it and I actually had it on the spreadsheet (laughs) and not just, I have one for this one, but I'm surprised. (laughs) I'm so happy. (laughs) So this story is short. Uh, and it has a content warning for animal cruelty. Originally, there was also a content warning for PETA, but I dropped that source because I hate PETA. Also, Fuck PETA. saying, Fuck I'm PETA. so happy, and then you're like, content warning for animal abuse. <laughs> it's like when someone's like, we're going to talk about the Holocaust, and you're like, what? <laughs> Alana and I, every week of our class. And there is so much propaganda around this story that it is basically impossible to sift through. And I will absolutely have my own agenda in telling this story. Nothing is neutral and all that. But somehow the least biased source was Wikipedia. I didn't actually use Wikipedia. I just kind of scroll to their references. It's how I usually do research for this is I go to the Wikipedia page and then go to their references. I wrote every essay in college. Yeah. Don't use Wikipedia as a source. Use it as a library. Anyways, where was I? (laughs) So the original Shamu was born a wild killer whale at some point in the 1960s or late 50s. Uh, I can't give you her exact birthday, but there is definitely a Pisces joke in there somewhere. Nobody's laughing at my joke. I'm sorry, I didn't laugh at your joke, Haley. This feels awful. I know. (laughs) Pisces, because the Pisces star sign is the fish. Oh, ha. I don't know the like... Oh, you don't know them. I just Lexi smiled and I did appreciate that. Anyway, Pisces is the fish and Shamu is killer whales. There's definitely a Pisces joke there. In October of 1965, Shamu was the first orca or killer whale. They're basically the same thing to be captured on purpose or porpoise on porpoise. (laughs) Ah, funny. I got that one. (laughs) In the past, orcas had been captured by accident as part of fishing or whaling. But Shamu was caught with the intention to be a companion for another whale who had been caught accidentally named Namu. But the two didn't really get along. So SeaWorld San Diego bought Shamu a couple months later where she was definitely mistreated, definitely kept in too small a tank, possibly deprived of food to be taught tricks and put on this show. In August of 1971, the original Shamu died after six years in captivity. There was a lot wrong with her. There were two separate diseases that I can't pronounce. And she had a collapsed dorsal fin. You'll see this a lot in the killer whales that are now in SeaWorlds is they'll have a collapsed dorsal fin. When they should be like standing upright, they'll just kind of fold over, which you don't see that in the wild. So it is uh, bad news bears. 
However, the name Shamu continued as a stage name for other orcas in SeaWorld Park shows around the United States, including a whale named Kalina, who became known as Baby Shamu. So there isn't really one Shamu anymore. And it was definitely not the Shamu that I saw when I was like 10 in San Diego. These days, SeaWorld is kind of moving away from Shamu branding after being denied by the state of California to construct another whale tank. They were like, you can't do that here. So they've taken away their Shamu branding and have taken the name Shamu off a bunch of their like rides at the parks all over the country. So it's possible that no other generation will even know of Shamu in the same context that we do. It's obviously a bad thing, but you know what? I saw that show a couple times when I was a kid. It gets your heart racing when you see someone like Did riding on the nose the of a silver whale. Of course, they sat no, in the splash they zone. Cut they cut the getting in the water with them out years ago when that woman died. They yeah, haven't been I riding on the whale since we were little kids. Maybe I saw her ride on a, dar- a dolphin. They they still ride on dolphins, but they it, but it's riding on it's, the noses since like two thousand five six. Um, yeah. Oh, I might have seen it in two thousand three. I think I think I saw it before that woman died because I lived in Southern California, so we went to SeaWorld a couple times. I I went to the went to SeaWorld more often than I went to Disneyland, I think. But it does it gets the heart rate up a little bit. You get splashed by a whale. Yeah. And you see these people like riding the dolphins and it's not good well at least it's not good but at least the dolphins is better than the whales that's true still not good i'm not gonna still not good better not as horrible it's just a different level of horrible a different kind of horrible if you will yeah my mom touched not the real shamu one of the shamus i actually tried to figure out i was on the wikipedia page of all orcas in captivity because i get in these wikipedia holes and I was trying to figure out which orca she touched. Couldn't figure it out. There were like too many options for that time range. But um, she was pregnant. So she always used to tell my little brother that he touched an orca <laughs> because she was pregnant. But they picked her because they were, they were like trying to like make it part of the show. Like, oh, Shimu, she loves pregnant women. It was like really weird. <laughs> she can like sense the baby. I'm like, probably she's an intelligent mammal, but she probably is like going to eat my mom into the... Yeah, I guess that was so it was 2003 so it was before they stopped because they used to literally bring people up on the stage I remember touch them and then they didn't even let their trainers in the water with them after you know after the big incident so yeah that was not the original Shamu so I did not put it in my story that's Shamu's have killed people at least three and that one um that one male whale Talcani Talcum he has killed like three people just him if I was stuck in a little tank and people, like if I was stuck in my studio apartment forever and someone came in and was like, do you want a treat? I might murder them. Yeah. Like, anyway, orcas should be wild and free. Or put in sea sanctuaries where they can get help that they need. And care yeah, that they're they injured. Need. That's a great idea. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode and our merch will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at LexiBDraws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week.
week on Lady History. Get in, loser. We're going shopping, a la Mean Girls, because we're discussing some fashion designers and influencers.